Happy Halloween to all the listeners out there. Thanks for joining us again for another episode of the Newsline Review Podcast, the show that brings you the weekly roundup of the week's most important news and how they affect your daily life. My name is Daniel Anderson, and I'll be your host today. Amy Coney Barrett was sworn in as the newest Supreme Court Justice this week. The nomination of Amy Coney Barrett of Indiana to be an Associate Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States is confirmed. Joining us to discuss Justice Barrett and how the Supreme Court may change is Dr. Michael Diccio, a professor of political science at the University of Utah. Thanks for speaking with us, Dr. Diccio. Of course, glad to be here. So to start, during her confirmation process, many opponents of Justice Barrett said that her confirmation was too rushed and that the process would suffer because of it. Was that the case? Was it adequately rigorous of a hearing? Hmm. That's a good question. It was certainly quicker than um, the average duration that we see um, with Supreme Court justice uh, nominees. You know, it's hard to say if it was adequately rigorous. I'm not sure how much more substance we would have got even if it had lasted you know, another month or two longer. I'm not sure if it would have had much of a qualitative difference in the tone and the tenor of the nomination in the education that it would have given to the public. So, you know, it's hard to say, really. Okay. Um, and kind of with a follow-up on that, um, do you think that this might prove that um, confirmation hearings in the future can be faster. I think certainly, yes. Uh, it, it doesn't take too much, I think, to develop a precedent, really. And so I could see this absolutely affecting um, the style and, and speed of subsequent uh, nominations. Absolutely. With the Supreme Court now comprising six conservative judges and three liberal judges, the Democrats are upset and looking to balance the scales. I will uh, ask them to over uh, 180 days come back to me with recommendations as to how to uh, reform the court system because it's getting out of whack. If former Vice President Biden is elected, how would he go about expanding the Supreme Court? Um, and is that, is that even legal? Well, it's Congress that would expand the court. They would, they would have to write a new law that increases the size of the Supreme Court itself. Uh, yes, that's perfectly legal. Our Supreme Court has changed in size throughout its history. It's been about nine. It's been nine justices for about 150 years, um, but it's been as few as I believe five justices and as many as 10. So it has changed in size. And that's something that Congress under uh, uh, Article three really can can do if it if it wants to. Okay. 
Um, and, and then my final question um, is this, if the Supreme Court doesn't change, um, how would a conservatively kind of uh, dominated Supreme Court affect um, future, future cases that they see, if at all? Well, I think some of the some of the trends that we've seen over time will continue. Um, um, you know, th the court has been held by a conservative majority uh, for some time. And so I think you can see some of those patterns continue um, th that, that, we, that we've already seen under the Roberts court in, in, in various different areas. I mean, it's going to look different, of course, across different, different issue areas. Well, thanks for taking the time to speak with us, Dr. DiCio. Of course. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. We are going to win Florida. We are going to win four more years. It's up to you. You hold the key. If Florida goes blue, it's over. Today marks three days until the election which means by our next episode, we will know who has won. Here to review where the campaigns stand right now is Quinn Monson, a professor of political science at BYU. Thanks for joining us, Professor Monson. Glad to join you. Thanks for inviting me. So first off, we are less than a week away and the campaigns are in full swing, trying to pick up the last bit of momentum before election day. What are the most hotly contested states right now? Oh, I think uh, on election night, I'll be keeping a close eye on Florida and Pennsylvania uh, early in the evening as those polls close uh, in the east. And as things move west uh, in the Midwest, I'll be uh, keeping an eye on Wisconsin and, and uh, Michigan. And oddly enough, uh, I hadn't, I wouldn't have anticipated this, but I'm very curious to see how things end up in Georgia and Texas. Uh, not places I normally would have expected to be competitive, but they appear uh, to be competitive by all the polling that's out now. And, and so uh, I'm not sure those are as close as we think, or if they really are close, uh, that's a really bad sign for President Trump. Um, and then as we move further west, I think the states to keep closest eye on are uh, probably Arizona and uh, maybe Nevada. Okay. And I may be forgetting one or two there, but those are the ones that, that just come to the top of mind as you ask. Yeah, yeah. Um, and are there any particular issues um, that you're aware of that are um, uh, kind of points of contention in those battleground states that are that could be the determining factor for the candidates? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think uh, rather what I would say about this election is that uh, it's unusual uh, that at this point of the election, I think the majority of votes have already been cast and uh, and the other important thing to say is that I think voters have largely made up their minds. And uh, if you look at polling, it hasn't really moved much uh, over a, the course of many weeks. Uh, so if it's moved at all, it's moved just a little bit. I think, I think the campaigning uh, from the president and from uh, Vice President Biden has both, have both been to uh, 
to mobilize their supporters and energize their supporters and has been less and less about persuasion as the campaign has developed. So there's still time for these campaigns to turn out their supporters. There's still time for ballots to be turned into drop boxes and even for people to show up to polling places on election day. But yeah. I don't think there's a lot of persuasion going on at this point. Yeah, yeah. Um, so projections, um, many places put Biden well ahead of President Trump right now. Um, what's the likelihood that President Trump might be able to pull off an upset and, and um, confound these projections? Well, this is where uh, watching what happens in Florida on election night becomes important because uh, Florida's a very populous state and it's rich in electoral votes. And of course the election is won and lost at the state level in the electoral college tally. And so uh, if President Trump loses the state of Florida, I think at that point, it's extremely unlikely that he can put together the combination of, of states needed to pull off the victory. Uh, so that's why I'll be watching Florida on election night uh, early. And, and I think actually the, we're, we're unlikely to have a result out of Pennsylvania on election night. Uh, it's, it's likely to take a little while for Pennsylvania officials to count all those ballots. Uh, so uh, if, if there's a resounding victory by uh, Joe Biden, uh, it will be because he's won so many states that even states that haven't finished counting yet that are still up in the air are not critical to his electoral college tally. And that's possible, but it is possible. And we should, and we should say this out loud because of what happened in 2016 with uh, I think pretty clear expectations by most people that Hillary Clinton would be elected, uh, that it's not impossible for Donald Trump to, uh, to pull out a victory in some, in some form. So I think the polls are accurate, uh, but, uh, and, I, and I do polling myself, and I think it's, uh, when it's done well, it's an accurate uh, gauge of voter sentiment, but uh, they can be wrong. Uh, and they're not—they're uh, not easy to do well. And so there's there there can be problems. And I think we discovered a little bit of that in 2016. And and it's always possible again. Awesome. Well, we will be watching this very closely, um, as I'm sure you will as well. And uh, thank you for for coming in and speaking with us, Professor Monson. <laughs> You're welcome. I'm very glad to have joined you and I hope to do it again. You can just quickly work through ideas. You don't have to focus on trying to erase something, fix mistakes. October is home to a growing trend. People everywhere are starting to celebrate Halloween. You gotta take advantage of spooky season, right? <laughs> Find out how BYU is staying safe next. Light cool and be cool. Energy Star Qualified Lighting will help you save green by going green. It's in the lamp socket right next to your bed. How can that be? If every American home changed only one light to an Energy Star, we could prevent the equivalent in greenhouse gas emissions of nearly 800,000 cars. One small step for you. One giant step for America's energy supply. Brighten your environmental future. From the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency.
Welcome back. Artists and animators are busy this month because of a growing trend called Inktober. You like start narrowing things down and that's when you can really start like pulling from bunches of different ideas, you know? Joining us to talk about it is Newsline reporter and anchor, Allie Arnold. Thanks for joining us, Allie. Thanks for having me. So right off the bat, what is Inktober and how did it start? So Inktober started in 2009 by BYU alum Jake Parker. It's a way for animators and artists alike to start actually drawing with ink instead of pencils. When you use pencils, you can erase, you can start over, you take a lot of time. With ink, you have to draw quickly, you have to draw confidently, and you have to be willing to commit to what you do. So it started off as a way to have what they call stroke confidence, and just confidence in the way that you use a pen. Um, but it's over the years, it's become an international initiative to be more creative and find new spins on things to draw. Uh, it's for the entire month of October, there is a daily prompt that gives you one word. It could be um, like fish or slippery or dizzy or dune or uh, shoes, for example. And then you have to draw something or anything that inspires you from this um, one thing. So with the people that I interviewed, I interviewed um, two BYU animator students. Um, that work for the BYU biology department as part of their PR, but also they make animations for the biology department. And so they did Inktober as a way to create new sketches for the biology department. So everything that they did had like a scientific spin. So for shoes, one of them drew a lab in a lab coat with shoes as like safety gear and like goggles. And for the word, I think it was ominous. Um, one of them drew the coronavirus as like this evil anime character. So it's pretty cool. You can do a lot within uh, these prompts, but these one words inspired tons of different ideas. Okay, so so um, you mentioned that it was kind of an international um, uh, movement. Um, is it like, like, is there a contest or is it just kind of a social media trend? Um, how is, how is this kind of grown? So it's mostly a social media trend. It isn't really a contest. I'm not aware of any contests that are going on this year, but simply all you have to do is look at the prompt for that day. Um, draw something and ink about it, and then you post it with the hashtag Inktober or Inktober 2020 to social media. Um, and then people can see your work and it can be reposted on the Inktober page or just other animators or artists can see your work. So it's a way for work to get out there, but also it's not so much uh, for public recognition as it is for people finding ways to get more creative and pushing themselves to draw every day and pushing themselves to use ink so that they really gain confidence in their sketching skills. Well, thanks for joining us, Allie. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure answering your questions, Daniel. I've had a great time. Today is the day of childhood memories full of fright and delight. 
But this year has changed many things, and Halloween is no different. Because usually I would have like a bunch of people over, but I don't really want to do that. Earlier this week, I interviewed Spring Buford, the BYU Student Service Association president, about the plans that they had made for this weekend's Halloween festivities and how they approached it for a COVID world. Thanks for joining us, Spring. Thanks, thanks for having me. So first off, um, how do you go about planning Halloween activities with COVID and everything? Yeah, so the very first step was to consider what we were able to do on campus. We wanted to spread it out all over campus so students didn't have to come to one location. So as you'll see around campus tomorrow, Friday, um, that every quad should have something in it. Awesome. Um, and in hindsight, now that the planning process has been completed, is there anything that you would have done differently? Well, it was actually pretty interesting. We were asked to host this event a few weeks ago. And usually an event of this size, we would plan a few months in advance. So given the time we had, I think we've done our best. The hardest thing has been uh, garnering volunteer support. I think just being short notice and many people not being on campus, it's made that a little difficult, but we're still really excited for what we have put together. Okay. <clears throat> and um, do you think that this, um, uh, this approach to doing activities on campus, do you think that will model how you do future um, activities this year? You mean like regarding COVID? Yeah. Oh, totally. Um, one thing I, that I really appreciate is the fact that we can have activities like this on campus. I understand it's important to be very safe and careful with COVID, but at the same time, students still need to be connecting. It's important to have fun. People have been in isolation for months and something that's safe that's on campus where you can get treats and swag and engage in the holiday spirit. I think it's important. Awesome. And then just uh, in conclusion, has this, do you think this has been a good, uh, a good uh, process? Do you think the activities um, are going well? Um, was the planning process good? <laughs> yes, I think the planning process has been awesome. We've kind of dictated that every quad has a different theme. So for example, the JFSB is spiders and people will be sliding candy through different tubes. So that's like the spider candy slide area. In the Marigold Quad, it's pumpkin patch theme. So you'll be pumpkin bowling and having contests to win pumpkin flavored everything. Pumpkin pop tarts, pumpkin pancakes, pumpkin muffins. Um, the Brigham Square is going to be monster mash, kind of like a party theme. So it's a cakewalk. We have tons of cakes that we're giving away in little individual cake slices. And then finally in the South Campus Quad, it's kind of ghost graveyard themed and we're giving away service bags um, or boo bags to give to other people as a service. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining us, Spring. Of course, thanks for having me. Well, that's all for today's episode of the Newsline Review. Thanks for listening, and thanks to Spring Buford, Allie Arnold, 
Professor Monson and Professor Diccio for joining us today. Join us again next week as we talk about the results for the 2020 presidential election. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you can listen to podcasts so that you never miss an episode. This is Daniel Anderson with the Newsline Review. Have a spooktacular weekend.